Hey all, welcome to the Knock LA podcast. I'm Bushido Squirrel, and today I'm sitting down with Ankur Patel. So right now I work for LAUSD school board member Scott Schmerlson, but I'm actually here with Ground Game and Bushido Squirrel to talk about my campaign for California State Assembly District 45, which is the West Valley. So let's talk about the assembly, because here in California we have not only a state assembly, we also have a state senate. Uh, what's the difference between the two? Well, the State Assembly and the State Senate are very similar to the U.S. Uh, Congress and the U.S. Senate as they're two you know, bicameral houses where they pass legislation, they got to rectify, and then it goes up at the state level to the governor to sign into law. So there's 80 State Assembly members um, and 40 State Senators, and they are the legislative body that votes on the $125 billion California budget, and most people don't know who they are. Why are you looking to represent the West Valley? Well, it's part of my upbringing, my experience, and really because I believe in the power of education and how campaigns can be an educational tool to raise the political dialogue, the public consciousness, and talk about the issues that we care about that corporations and their elected or their paid-for assembly members aren't talking about. And so on that issue, are you uh, running under the banner of the, the Republicans, the Democrats? Like, how are you aligning yourself with the political parties? I've registered as a Democrat for this race because the numbers make sense. I've been independent since I was 18. Um, I'm 32 now, and this is the first time I'm running as a Democrat. But just like so many other levels of society, the people at the top don't represent the people at the bottom. That's in the Democratic Party. That's in the Republican Party. That's all over the place, and that's why I've chosen to run as a Democrat in this race because we have an incumbent who represents corporations and not people, taking money from every single major corporation you can think of, says the right thing in public, says what voters want to hear, then takes all that money, goes into a back room, and then writes legislation and is not held accountable. So you're not just looking to win the seat. You're looking to pull it farther to the left if you win the seat. And why do you think the Democrats are an effective way to do that instead of just going independent? Well, winning is an effective way to do anything, and that's part of the the, the calculus is what gives the leftist candidate the best chance to win. And even leftists, you know, progressive, there's some aspects of being conservative that are good. There's this opportunity in not just our national politics because of how broken it is, how corrupt people have seen it, but especially here in California, we're part of this progressive wave. I've allied myself with other state assembly members who are also pushing on corporate incumbents, Steve Dunwoody, um, Marlon Medrano. These are other progressive people who have been involved in all sorts of different issues, pushing on um, people, not profits, and uh, happy to ally myself with people like Jessica Salins and Ground Game LA and other folks who have been activated in this last cycle. I, I actually got plugged in a little bit before Bernie. You know, Occupy really uh, woke me up. At, I finished my undergrad at UCLA in 2007, and environment is really the rabbit hole that got me down it. Um, took conservation biology classes. Why are we destroying our environment? Why are these oil companies making so much profit and not focus on our clean air, clean water, clean energy. How is that happening? Why is that going on? And politics is that rabbit hole where you start asking those questions and you start seeing, well, it's because they're giving money to make money and they're writing laws that benefit them, the tax breaks, the pollution, the, the, the lack of regulation on everything from natural gas storage facilities to uh, the Superfund sites to you know, the, the list is endless on this environmental front where people are making profit at the expense of the environment and that can't 
continue to be the way that our politics go. So before we get into the weeds on kind of your history and and what you see as your policy positions, uh, it seems like you're seeing 2018 as kind of a wave election. Like you're you're speaking to a lot of progressive candidates who are popping up. And uh, how are you feeling about the momentum at this point? We're still early-ish in in the cycle, um, even though the media starts reporting these things, you know, as soon as the next election begins. But a year out, what are you seeing as far as those trends and how are you feeling about the inertia? Well, I'm feeling really good. And, you know, I'm somebody who didn't vote for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Um, I was a Bernie supporter. And seeing how that 2016 election has um, ramifications, obviously, and the pushback from the Women's March to where we're going now, um, the inertia is is really good. People are not standing up to the culture of corruption, the culture of powerful people getting away with whatever it is that they were from sexual assault to corruption. This is part of this, I I hope, realization, this raising of public consciousness, this engagement of people in our politics, right? I believe in an informed citizenry, and that's part of the the purpose of this campaign and connecting to all these other folks who believe in similar stuff. And that's that's, that's where the real juice and the energy is at. Most people believe, I think, the same way and the same things that I do. It's just a matter of putting yourself in a position to articulate it clearly, powerfully, to enough people at the right time. And we're about six months away from the primary. So the June 5th primary election, you know, we have a top two here in California, a little bit complicated. It's everyone jumps in the race. And these last about eight years since the top two came into place has really favored the centrists. Right. The corporate Democrats have been able to dominate the state legislature because of the top two primary and the demographics, the numbers, the voter registration, uh, just those numbers have allowed these corporate Democrats to get a super majority. Basically, you know, you have a couple of progressive folks, you know, in, in different categories You know, uh, in the valley. We have Adrian Nazarian. He's pretty good. Laura Friedman, pretty good. Henry Stern is a state senator. You know, even at the congressional level, people like Nanette Baragon came in. But at the same time. We got too many people who are uh, status quo, focused on raising money from the wrong people and then writing legislation. And even if they vote, quote, the right way, that's that's not good enough anymore. We got to raise the level of urgency and what we're trying to do across all these issues. You know, single payer, universal guaranteed health care, right? The pharmaceutical companies and the health insurance lobby are actively stopping it from happening, even though if we start doing the numbers, we start looking at the benefits, it is going to be good and better for most of Californians, except for the pharmaceutical companies and the health insurance companies. So, you know, issue after issue, we got in a little bit of environment. And my background really recently has been in education. And there's a lot there. I wanted to ask before we we hop into into that, is this your first election? No, I've actually ran for office twice. I ran for Los Angeles City Controller in 2013. That was a citywide race, and my um, mantra and slogan and the reason why I ran is because corruption has become institutionalized through lobbying and campaign contributions. So I ran a campaign where I didn't take any money from anyone. I spent less than $1,000. It was a six-person race. We had a city hall insider named Dennis Zine, um, who I was— not a fan of he was literally disrespectful to people at the mic during public comment and i was really running in that race to make it clear we don't need another city hall insider who's going to cover up the corruption and and go down that same path and so i got fifth place out of six with that thousand dollars but i beat somebody who spent two hundred and twenty thousand dollars oh wow and in the runoff it was ron galpern and dennis ron galpern has been 
decent, pretty good. That whole idea of control panel LA, I, I like to take a little credit for that because I was talking about transparency. How do we know where the money is going and how it's being spent? And and so in that city controllers race, you know, I was. And the, the controller, just to just for people oh, who yeah. may not be aware, they they basically run the finances for the city. They're like in the in Britain, I think they're called like the exchequer, but they're basically responsible for making sure the checks get cut, exactly. the money is in the accounts it's yep. supposed to be in, and that there's audits conducted on the spending. And that's a big point: the audits, right? The controller has the ability to utilize their staff to dig into city departments, contracts, where is money going, how is it being spent, and Ron Galpern has done a pretty good job of looking at how is that DWP, the IBEW union, spending some of those funds on uh, X, Y, or Z, how, you know, he's done a lot of different audits on different aspects of parks and rec or the state of the bathrooms, you know, this division or department. Um, so that city controllers race really set me on that trajectory of paying more attention into the weeds. And then in 2015, I ran for LAUSD school board. Um, again, haven't gone through LAUSD public education, UCLA undergrad, uh, master's at CSUN, uh, taught English in Korea, in China, uh, uh, graduate and, student And these at are CSUN. for, uh, for the LAUSD school board. They're a very small board. There's only eight members? Seven. Seven. And they control the lives of a couple million students. Uh, we have about 600,000 students in LAUSD, but they control a couple billion dollars. This last uh, budget was about $8 billion. And depending on if how you calculate bonds and facilities construction and these outside contractors and what the uh, calculus is with charter schools and where all that's going, the school board is pretty interesting. But being on the inside, working for a school board member, um, is giving me a lot of insight. It's much different than holding up a, a sign on a street corner. <laughs> Have you found, and, and that hasn't turned you off to wanting to run. Like after, after those two races, you were like, I want to go to, for a statewide position. Those, they didn't make you too cynical. No, I mean, th there's definitely some level of cynicism in it. And to be honest, uh, it's that same kind of ethos belief that we can do better with our elected officials. Now, if I'm the person, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to step up. But we can't let corrupt incumbents who prioritize corporations go unchallenged. And I'm, that's, that's one of those things where I'm not afraid to take a, 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 get into a campaign against a $2 million chair of the Banking and Finance Committee and levy all these issues and talk about them in a campaign because this is how democracy works. And so what are you envisioning your campaign's going to look like? It doesn't seem like you're going to be knocking on the doors of big donors. You're not going to be throwing any $30,000 plate Soros meals. Uh, so what's what's going to be your model for moving forward in this election? It is people to people. It is so many different organizations are now getting active on their particular issues, digging into how do they actually pass legislation? How do they make an impact? You know, I was just meeting with the Topanga Peace Alliance or this Democratic Club or this CSUN Student Club or this PTSA or there are endless numbers of organizations that are, you know, sometimes just dealing with the symptoms, dealing with small problems that come up and, you know, working for a school board member, the constituent services, that's part of the job. But how can we get at the fundamental issues that are facing our state, our society, and I, I feel honing in on some of those issues and coming up with those big solutions in healthcare, in environment, in education, in transportation, in corruption, in housing. You know, these are major issues that 
if we can take a step back, look at the trees from the forest and build allies and be um, inclusive. You know, I, I small businesses and chambers of commerce don't like giant corporations either, really. You know, there's a lot of different ways that we can get into the nuance and, again, talk about issues and solutions that are going to benefit the majority of people, not just in Assembly District 45, but across the state of California. And so that's really a crux of how this campaign is going to roll out. All these different organizations that are active in not just in the valley, but across the state that have these issues and how do we align them. And then it's door to door. It's face to face. It's phones. It's emails. It's utilizing the data and that is available to a campaign, to a candidate in the most efficient way possible. I don't want to raise money to send mailers with my photo to people. I think that's pretty, uh, it's, it's kind of funny that that's a primary use of campaign dollars. It makes no commercials, um, consultants, and mail is a huge use of resources. I don't want to do that. I want to empower people to speak on my behalf. I don't want to be a bottleneck. I want to support all these different organizations, their issues. We work out the, not just talking points, but the, the legislation, the reasons, the, the analysis, the research, and podcasts like this, organizations like Ground Game, and, and uh, the development that's come out of that in this short year, including Knock, is part of how this campaign, my campaign for assembly, our campaign for this progressive wave across California can, um, in these next six months, and take, take, take off, hopefully. Okay, so you mentioned your your background is in education. So let's let's start there and kind of go through like what you envision as a plan for California's state assembly to to do in the next couple of years. Uh, what specifically legislation you back or don't support, and kind of where you see what you'd be able to bring that would be innovative, new to that seat and to those committees. So um, funding is a big issue. How is and how are school districts funded in California is complicated. We went to this local control funding formula, which allocates different amounts of money per student to districts based on how many kids do they have in poverty, how many kids are English language learners, foster youth. There's a couple of different categories. Special education is not part of that new formula. So that's a big push. You know, working for school board member Schmerlson, one of his things has been on special education. And it costs more to educate somebody who has special requirements. Now, in LAUSD, which is really where I'm most familiar, we have individual education plans. And the the way that funding goes from the state to a school district for specific purposes, be it special education or advanced education, magnets, or um, college admission process, that is something that when we continue, when we dig into, um, I I don't like to say we need more money for education, but that is definitely a primary objective that needs to be figured out. We have Proposition 98, which dictates that a certain percentage of the state budget goes to education. Now, how is that being allocated to a school district, and where are some funds potentially – I'm a big proponent of thinking outside the box, outside of the classroom, field trips. We have 180 days of instruction in an LA, in LAUSD, and each of those days, we're, it's, it's somewhat disconnected year by year, grade by grade, first grade to fifth grade elementary, secondary, versus looking at all 2,000 days as one educational uh, pathway that we put our students on towards college and career readiness, life skills, whatever it is, 
that kind of holistic thinking is something that I would like to bring. Now, obviously, we have the state board of education. We have a state superintendent of education. Curriculum is a big piece of this. Textbooks, what books are being used? How is that curriculum being shared? How is it being uh, approved? You know, different school districts have different angles on this. And it took me two and a half years to even have a little bit of idea on what the timeline is, what's the process of textbook roadshows where different teachers get input on which books are going to be approved by the district. But we're still, again, and this goes back to that fundamental concept of we got big corporations, McGraw-Hill, Pearson, billion-dollar companies international that are pushing their materials, their textbooks, because of their ability to lobby, to know the system better than somebody on the inside even for the right causes, to get their books into our schools. Now, why can't we have things like Khan Academy? But the bottom line is people want to help. People want public education to be good. Even if they send the kids to private school, they want their public school to be better than it is. And it's a matter of connecting resources, bringing opportunities and programs to students that are interesting to them that are engaging to them so athletics is a big part of this how and that's one way these charter schools and private schools outcompete public schools on a regular basis now obviously we're not going to school to play sports but there are so many different um, lessons to be learned and engagement to be had and healthy body healthy mind there's so many different angles to how the public education system focuses on sometimes too much on testing on specific categories of student, you know, not leaving any child behind, but not necessarily um, given the opportunities for, you know, I, 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 again, the whole class hierarchy type of conversation can become very tricky when you're talking about public education competing with charter schools and private schools, the way that the different demographics play and how schools that have, uh, families who can raise money get extra programs. They get an extra computer lab. They get an extra science teacher. They get extra field trips. They get extra everything. And all these poor schools can't even have parents volunteer because it costs $60 for them to get live scan to volunteer at the school site. Well, I, I remember I had um, a, a friend whose mother was a vice principal. She pointed out when there were those massive state uh, shortfalls several years ago, back around uh, 2009, 2010, that her families in her district, which included a lot of poor agricultural students, but a lot of wealthy white students, were able to crowdfund the $100,000, $300,000 shortfall for the school district and fill in those gaps. The the districts right next door to her that were did not have those wealthy families were unable to. And aside from that being bad for the students, it seems to add a lot of pressure onto the teachers and make it harder for us to keep a kind of uh, uh, the the keep bringing in the better teachers that we need year after year. And we get a lot of like people saying, you know, tenure is the problem and we can't get the old teachers out, but we are having a really hard time getting young teachers interested. So let's focus on teachers, right? Uh, teachers are absolutely the most important school site staff for an individual student. Um, we don't pay them enough. We don't respect them enough. They're not given enough uh, autonomy to be creative. Sometimes that can be a bad thing. The, the supervision, the assessment process of teachers is biased and in some ways, and depending on if you have an administrator that likes you or doesn't like you, uh, it could go one way or the other, regardless of what you actually do in a classroom. Um, in the early 90s, uh, actually, Delaine Easton, I think when she was the superintendent of education, we focused in on class size, right? So there was huge amounts of money put in to reduce class size. 
But how are we going to do that? We're going to hire teachers. We hired a bunch of teachers who had emergency credentials. Some of those folks weren't weren't prepared to be teachers. That's not to say all of them weren't, but it becomes that kind of complicated question and balance, class size, teacher quality, what's the professional development, where are they getting these teaching degrees from and how are they being prepared for it? Senator Henry Stern uh, introduced a piece of legislation that would incentivize teachers going into the field, you know, through tax credits and um, that kind of angle. Um, at the state level, what we need to do for teachers is a lot. <laughs> uh, and part of it is prioritizing and respecting and listening to teachers. And again, at the school site, there are so many creative, awesome opportunities that teachers are coming up with. And I've had the privilege of working with teachers who created NASA night at Vintage Elementary School, bring in uh, a, a JPL or NASA scientist to talk for a little bit at a, as a keynote speaker, and then classroom by classroom have workshops based on science, technology, engineering, math, uh, hands-on projects, engineering, and empowering teachers to be creative and offer new opportunities is definitely a big piece of what I would want to do as a state assembly member. But fundamentally, we got to talk about how do we pay teachers more? That is that is at the crux of how to, in this capitalist society, how do we address this fundamental concern in public education and the quality of teachers? It's simply to pay them a little bit more. And do, do you feel that the charter schools movement is helping teachers get paid more, like now that there's more competition for teachers, or do you feel that they're helping to depress wages? Uh, some charter schools are better than others. Uh, the non-unionized ones, uh, the ones that are picking up on that idealism that young people have to make a difference in public education. They're pulling these people in and giving them some of those freedoms and opportunities to be creative and change the lives of young people, but they're squeezing them. They're, they're extracting as much work out of them as possible for as little pay as possible. Um, th there's a range. You know, Some charter schools do pay more than public schools. Many don't. Um, so charter schools have created this interesting ecosystem of opportunity in some ways for teachers to get out of the classroom, be creative, to teach in different uh, atmospheres and environments. But um, the charter school conversation is so nuanced in that in LAUSD, we have about 200 charter schools, about 50 affiliated charter schools. We have independent charter schools that were created. We have conversion charter schools. So two of the best high schools in all of LAUSD are Granada Hills High School and El Camino High School. They used to be LAUSD public schools. They were good before they were charter schools. They went independent charter, and that allowed them to expand on the things that they were doing successfully. That made them good. And so since then, they've continued to capitalize on that on that advertising, on that media, on that propaganda, on that s results that they have been successful and continue to build wait lists of 1,000 kids, of expanding, of growing, while there's other independent conversion charter schools like Birmingham High School that don't have those results, even though it's it's kind of in that same vein of being an LAUSD school. They were doing some good things. They went independent charter. Um, you know, they're, they're – record of success is not as clear 
as Granada Hills and El Camino. And again, year to year, year to year, you could have a new principal and it changes the whole culture of a school. It can be dramatic. You know, the the students that come in, the, the way that a new program gets implemented, the way that Common Core gets rolled out or a textbook gets rolled out, a, a dynamic new teacher who takes it upon themselves to lead the 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 cohort of teachers and, and brings different capacity year to year we have an opportunity to change students lives that's a sense of urgency that i would i want to bring at that state assembly level we're not in it to keep things going the same way but we want to take what's been successful and expand it we want to listen to people who are in the in the classrooms where it matters and bring legislation and support legislation that improves public education in the state of California. And so that that it seems like does in your plan include charter schools in some sense uh, and in, includes public education in some sense or, or you see more seeing charter schools as something necessary because of the conditions we have and something you'd ultimately like to turn back into public schools. Let's take a step back yeah. really bad. So around 1900, right, we have African-Americans realizing that in order to succeed in society, they need to be educated. There is a push for education at a lot of levels in African-American churches, but also public education. And through this recognition and this movement, we start building this campaign and push for public education funded by the state for all folks. But then you also have capitalists Carnegie and Rockefeller and other folks who recognize yeah we need educated workers we need people who can hear the bell show up on time and do what needs to be done and continue to make uh, corporations businesses uh, labor and capital that relationship Um, so the evolution of public education and private education and church education and universities all the way back is is complicated. So now now fast forwarding all the way to charter schools, now it's it, it's I, I'm not I'm not a proponent of charter schools as a solution. Mm-hmm. I'll make that clear. But we have them. Mm-hmm. And the nuances of how they were created, who's created them why they're being created changes again from school to school classroom to classroom you have folks like eli brode and bloomberg and the walton foundation and the gates foundation you know i'm not it's hard to say what their overall intentions are but they are in this venture philanthropist mode Mm -hmm. some people don't like it i'm pretty sure ground game doesn't like it (laughs) using what charter schools have done well and bringing it in to public education is where we need to go. We have this huge, over the last 10 years, project where LAUSD built 130 public schools. Some of them were, before they were even open, basically given over to certain charter schools to operate. Um, We have many charter schools operating on private grounds. We have them operating in strip malls. We have Proposition 39, which is co-locations. We have charter schools operating independently, semi-independently, on LAUSD public schools. We have this interesting milieu of so many different dynamics where the solution, and from the school site to the district, everyone understands it's 
local response, local control, hearing what the parents in the community want and giving it to them and supporting their students in that way. The district makes it hard to do. When you have a huge district like LAUSD and you have to take into account safety, this is the primary thing. And so many things are done that are bureaucratic, that are red tape, that are frustrating, that are make people cynical, but it's because of safety. And and that's such a important part of the equation that you got to take into account. So there needs to be some new uh, ways to increase local autonomy, but also making sure that all the I's are dotted, T's are crossed. And LAUSD uh, in this last, what was it, four years ago, something uh, when Ray Cortinez came in, they reorganized to local school districts. So again, the way that LAUSD is organized, there are six local school districts. In the Valley, we have local district Northwest, Northeast, um, there's West, Central, East, and South. You know, South is all the way to the San Pedro and the Bay. And each of these local school districts have a local superintendent. They have their uh, instructional cabinet. They got folks that are directors who generally used to be principals that re- principals directly report to. They got operations coordinators who are responsible for um, the operations of the school site, making sure papers filled out, uh, issues are taken care of in terms of safety or bullying or, um, you know, who got transferred to what school or how the buses get there. Um, And there's complex project managers responsible for school site facilities. Um, So that's kind of the 101 right there in terms of how the school district is broken up and the different categories, instruction, operations, and facilities. Parent engagement is often left out of that. Uh, but at the local district level, we have instituted parent and community engagement divisions, departments, units. Um, and they, the district is so big, we have 80,000 employees. And over the two and a half years that I've been working for it, they're are so many people doing good work on so many different issues and it seems like everyone is over overburdened it makes no sense when we have 38 kids in a classroom and not enough assistant principals at, at a school site to deal with special education we don't have uh, targeted student uh, uh, professionals at a school site to deal with the foster youth or the special education kids or the English language learners. We have nurses one day a week. We have school psychologists based on the number of individual education plans, and that's not enough. We have school site staff that are our office managers, our school administrative assistants, our office techs who are nurses four days a week. And on top of that, they got to make sure the school runs. So the school site, regardless if it's a charter or a private or an LAUSD public school, and we've had the opportunity to visit all of these in these last two years and see how we can learn from private schools who are doing things well, to learn from charter schools who are doing things well, and then going to our public schools and saying, what are the challenges that you're facing here? And using the political office, using that political capital, using the connections that you have to bring resources to address those specific concerns, it's grass, it's it's ground, it's, it's a ground game. You You got to be on the ground knowing what's going on at that school site. And we have 102 schools in board district three. There is no way for me to know everything that's going on at every school on every day. I There's no way for me to go to every PTSA meeting, even though it could be important. And there's all these different layers of organizations that are going on that are in it for the right reason, that are in it to help support public education. And I, I think 
my background, my experience going to these meetings, talking to people, hearing all this stuff, being able to articulate it, hopefully clearly enough so that your your listeners can get a better understanding of how it works and where I'm coming from. And, you know, I want to hear from more people on what their solutions are as well. Because it sounds like one of the one of the things you're pointing to is that we've seen this growth of bureaucracy. We've seen uh, the the number of people who are actually administering uh, LAUSD in those schools uh, has grown and they have a lot of capabilities, but that's not necessarily impacting the students on the ground as individually as you would like to see. Um, and so to, to step it up now from uh, LAUSD, uh, as you as you realize, being a Bruin, which I can never support that sort of stuff. Oh, you know, oh uh, it's okay. The other school's okay, in, too. Inter-school rivalry. Uh, but anyways, um, the UC system and the Cal State system are some of the largest university systems in the country. Uh, they are somewhat autonomous with the Board of Regents, but the state assembly still sets budgets and stuff. So let's talk about higher education. We'll start with the UCs. What do you think is going on there? Okay, so the UC system, 10 University of California, um, campuses administered by like you said the uc regents approved by the state senate appointed by governor brown and janet napolitano interesting political figure who yeah, has full disclosure former um governor of my state uh good friend of my high school because all of the politicians kids in arizona all went to my high school uh, i met her on one or two occasions she seemed like a very nice lady um but i have not been a fan of her political yeah and so the uc system it's hard to talk about one without the other, the CSU and the community college, because the higher education master plan in the, I think it was the, the 60s for the state of California, um, laid out these three institutions to raise the level of public education, to provide that pathway, that career opportunity. And so UC is that top tier. It's that top, I think, 8 or 12% of students uh, are guaranteed admission. And then it becomes very, very, I don't want to say classist or hierarchical, but I also went to CSU Northridge, and you can see the difference. There's that bourgeoisie kind of mentality. There's some privilege, but people are there at a public school with with those intentions of getting themselves out of poverty, with educating themselves, with supporting their family, with getting a career that they can feel comfortable and, and um, feel feel like they have a purposeful life well and with the the ucs and and mike uh my alma mater usc they've done a lot with bringing in uh foreign students because they can charge a lot more and they're trading off of that brand and i feel like you you definitely see that more and you feel uh people who are in state who are now competing with much higher tuitions and like tuitions that a they might possibly be able to pay but if you're looking at paying like ten thousand dollars versus like the 30 that they charge for out of state you're always going to want to be paying the 10 as somebody in state but now you're competing with somebody willing to pay three times as much and this is kind of a good problem right people from across the planet want to come to our universities and pay a lot of money because they are so good right this is a good problem to have now how are we dealing with it it's it's recently we almost had like 30 percent uh foreign student enrollment in particular UCs this way or that way. So as as this conversation continues to develop, and again, UC system is the best public education system of higher learning in the world. How do we continue to grow it? How do we continue to expand it? How do we continue to offer uh, new classes and new majors and new opportunities? This is, this is going to continue to happen. Now, in terms of what is the solution, I don't really know. 
uh, do we do we not let foreign students apply and enroll? Are they getting in because they're donating money and that's why they're getting in? That's a little bit of a problem. Are they getting in because they did really well on all their tests and they were at the top of their school and they have all these they wrote a great personal statement or now the UCs have personal questions. It's not a statement anymore. Um, do they, are, are we taking ad admissions without looking into borders? You know, that's, that's a tricky question on a lot of levels. Um, part of the solution though, is the CSUs. The CSUs have, there are 23 California state university campuses with almost, um, what is it? Hundreds of thousands of students. I think the UC system enrolls maybe 200,000 students. I, I got to look at these numbers more closely. And as this campaign gets into it, right, higher education is a big part of it. And I'm going to be precise with my numbers. This is part of the problem. We have a whole political and electoral system that doesn't recognize numbers. What year is it? When was it passed? What was the bill legislation? How many millions of dollars were rounding up and down for crucial, important things? And, and the community college system has 2 million students. Yeah. 2 million students in the community college system. And in the Valley, we have Pierce, Valley, Mission. Students can't get in, get into the classes that they need. They're taking all this extra time and they're taking classes that they don't need. LAUSD, and, and this is, I'm excited about some of these things. And, and I'm for education diplomacy, not a war diplomacy. This is a real, genuine primary solution to the problems of the planet and how we roll it out is, is, is crucial. So LAUSD is graduating Huge numbers of students, historically, almost 80%, but only 25% or so are actually persisting in graduating from a college if they enroll. So this articulation, this matriculation, this pathway, that is something that is continuing to look to. We have something called the College Promise now, where every LAUSD student is guaranteed one year full-time, first-time community college enrollment. Yeah, I want to ask, uh, for community college and for, like, the vota vocational schools, like, let's let's focus on those. What do you feel like the, are the shortfalls now, and what would you like to see changed? The shortfall on vocational programs is there aren't enough at the community college level, but there are these different programs that are starting to pop up. We need to focus on the medical field. There, you know, 20% of the jobs that are going to be created are going to be in the medical field. We have solar and wind uh, engineering programs at some schools. We have um, cosmetology, we have uh, uh, culinary arts, we have automech, we have all of these different programs that are not robust enough. That's what it really comes down to. We need more of these programs. They need to be integrated. They need to have that pathway from potentially elementary school all the way through uh, higher education to say, here is a pathway you choose. Give students the options. Here is a pathway to get a career in this field. You can go to the urban planning magnet. You can go to the medical magnet. You can go to this finance magnet. You can go to this vocational program. And and that's something that the, the school district and a lot of people have. I think it's, it's a more of a recent focus is that long-term pathway from pre-kindergarten, right, all the way to community colleges and, and UCs, what does that look like? And it's really honing in on where are we going to have the most jobs? Where is the most human need, not just in the state of California or, or the United States, but globally, and continue to develop and push and support those kinds of programs, curriculum, instructions, and, and uh, 
get away from the, the the focus and leniency we have on finance and speculation and interest and real estate and and insurance and all these I, I those those don't provide material benefit to the people and healthcare education agriculture environment housing transportation those do and and now uh sort of to step it up to the next level for the the CSUs and the the UC system a lot of students take out loans to afford those programs because they're very, especially at the UC level, it's very expensive. The The California community colleges are still an insanely great deal for college, incredibly cheap per credit hour. But for people who want an advanced degree or might want to pursue a master's degree and stuff, that can be out of reach. And their only option is to finance their education. Um, what do you see as the state being able to push back against that, fill in the gaps for that, make it less of a burden on working families that can't afford these outrageous tuitions? Such an important, complicated question in terms of what are our priorities, not just as a state, but as a nation? Where are we putting our funds, and can public education be fully paid for? Could it really be fully public? You know, everyone, uh, when you talk to older folk, they tell you in the 60s, it was almost free to get a UC degree. But with the with the reputation that has come with it with the fact that human beings migrate for opportunities with all those complicated factors it becomes how do we pay for the resources the capacity the programs that we're talking about the books the facilities the the instruction that we want what does that actually cost and where is that cost coming from is it fair to put that on students i don't think so but the state does not have the capacity to pay for all of that right now so how are we either gonna readjust our 125 billion dollar budget to make that happen or get more money from the federal budget which is really where i think instead of again a war diplomacy we need an education diplomacy and so many of those funds that are used to destroy other people's schools in other parts of the world their infrastructure could be used to subsidize or pay for or incentivize a higher quality public education here and and it becomes that again with that hierarchy with that top tier of student going to ucs that middle tier going to CSUs to those other students looking for that opportunity and advance and develop and grow with that growth mindset, do more at the community college level and then get to those higher levels of education and focus on the fields where if they study, if they read, if they learn, if they research, if they have experience, if they do the work, they can, regardless of if they didn't get good grades in high school, do something amazing in the future. So all of this needs to be looked at holistically and uh, yeah, we need to put more money into education so that people who have that potential and opportunity can can realize it. But then also, you know, we got to make sure that everyone has the level of education that can lead them to be self-sustaining, that they can have a, uh, a productive life, that they can, you know, again, looking at the special education, the, the whole range, right? We just went from UCs to special education real quick on, on the flip of a dime because it has to be looked at holistically but now on these special education fronts these people need to have support have to have programs have to have people taking them on the bus and giving them life skills you know parents who have kids with whatever uh learning difference that that they may have 
can't be there forever for them. And I have uh, friends and uncles and aunts and other people who it gets emotional very quick when you talk about what is your child going to do after you're gone. And even even my mom has that feeling. And, and I'm you know, I, I'm, I'm not in that same situation, but parents worry and the society, you know, it takes a village. It takes society to raise the next generation. And looking at all these things together is 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 what the education system needs to do. It seems like you're bringing to, to this race and, and hopefully to to your eventual seat in the state assembly, a real sense that California is a, a big behemoth. And it takes a while to course correct and to move that. And there are some big issues, but we can't lose sight of the fact that these issues, the the committee meetings, the finance decisions, the budget decisions have real world impacts and that you're not going to figure out what those are or how you can help the people around you in your district, your constituents, unless you're actually out there talking to them and like getting on the ground and finding out what their daily issues are and how that meshes with everyone around them. So on that note, what can people who are listening do to help your campaign? Well, we're going to be starting collecting signatures to qualify for the ballot on December 14th. Um, right now, uh, I don't have so much of that campaign infrastructure in place. Uh, still working on a lot of that stuff. Got to be honest, don't even have a website. You can add me on Facebook, Ankur Patel. I'm going to be using my personal account to really uh, marshal resources and people and direct energy. But I'd say get involved with your local political organizations, your community groups, connect a ground game, go to your neighborhood councils, PTSAs, etc. And for people who know, because they're probably going to be seeing a lot of uh, people looking for signatures in, the, la in the, the next year, you need to get signatures from people who live in the district that will be voting for you, uh, which is Assembly District 45, correct? Yes. 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 So uh, people from all of LA can't sign those, but you need around 2,000 signatures from there. If you were a little bit wealthier candidate, my understanding is you can buy your way out of that? Yes, yes. That is uh, the beauty of our democracy. Uh, you can pay to get on the ballot, or you can talk to people, convince them that you are the candidate that sh or a candidate that should be on the ballot and get them to sign a petition to uh, – like a nominating petition to be on the ballot. People who are not in Assembly District 45 could come and help me collect signatures in Assembly District 45 to get on the ballot. Um we are going to have a progressive wave in this state. And as this election cycle rolls, look for your progressive candidates in the place you live. I really don't want to have people drive in an hour to come help me over here when you have somebody in your neighborhood that if you spent that hour having a political conversation with would understand a little bit better, would be engaged a little bit more, would realize that they can make a difference. And I really believe that. That's at the fundamental heart of my campaign. I believe in an informed citizenry. I do believe education is power. I do believe campaigns can be that tool to facilitate all of these things coming together, and we move forward together. Excellent. Well, Ankur, thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank you. Bushido Squirrel and Ground Game. Thank you yeah, for the opportunity. Yeah, and we're going to be back here throughout uh, this election and the next one and the next one and the next one. So keep turning in uh, from all of us at Ground Game and Knock LA. Thank you very much and keep on fighting.